Right, we're going to have the Bible reading now. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in Psalm 3. We're going to read the whole Psalm, which is, I think is only eight verses. So if you've got those Bibles, open them up to Psalm 3. That's verses 1 to 8. And Liz is going to be doing the reading for us. So Psalm 3, a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I awoke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Good morning, everyone. Oh, good morning, good morning. If we haven't met before, my name is Peter, and it's a delight to meet you here this morning. Um, keep your finger there in Psalm 3. We're going to be right there in just a second. But before we do, I thought I would share a very amusing article I found um, this week from The Onion, which is an online satirical newspaper, okay, an online satirical newspaper. And the topic is retirement. Now, if you're here this morning and you are retired, I hope you can see some of the humor in this and just know that for the rest of us, we're all madly jealous of you. So um, the, uh, the article is titled, Elderly Man Feeling Useless in Retirement Wishes He Could Go Back to Feeling Useless at Work. From Florida, admitting he'd encountered a new kind of emptiness in his life since leaving his job nine months ago, 67-year-old Matthew Whalen confided to reporters Friday that he was feeling useless in retirement and secretly wished he could go back to feeling useless at work. Quote, Until I quit working, I never appreciated how important it was for me to have a place to go to every single day where I could be around colleagues while doing something meaningless and unproductive, said Whalen, who added that since retiring, he felt a lack of purpose at home that for more than 40 years he had been accustomed to experiencing only at the office. Quote, now I just sit at home morning, noon, and night, doing nothing of consequence and feeling insignificant. It really helped to break up the time better when I could spend eight hours of my day doing that at work. I did consider taking up a hobby, but the ones I looked into seemed every bit as pointless as my job was. At least my job, at my job, I got paid. At press time, sources confirmed Whalen had decided to go back to work part-time, hiring himself out as a completely useless consultant. So there is a, a satirical piece on retirement. Now, I know some of you may find yourself enjoying the fruits of your labors in retirement today, and the rest of us will be at work Monday to Friday straining forward towards that crown, retirement, paradise from the gruel and grind of everyday life. You know, we tend to see our lives as sort of a linear sort of march upwards through the decades, Granted, we might have our wobbles here and there, but if you zoom out, the image we have of our lives is a linear one of moving up through the decades towards happiness and security and success and oh, the golden word, retirement. But is that actually a true picture of our life? I think if we're honest, life is definitely not as linear as that. 
whether we're, whether we're retired or whether we're straining towards it. The poet Catherine May put it like this. She says, we're in the habit of imagining our lives to be a linear long march from birth to death where we amass powers and success. But in reality, life meanders like a path through the woods. We have seasons when we flourish and seasons when the leaves fall from us, revealing our bare bones. Life is not as linear as we'd like to hope. You know, 67-year-old Matthew Whalen felt useless in what should have been the most enjoyable chapter of his life. And today we'll see 70-year-old King David watches his life seemingly fall apart as he runs away from his son Absalom, who wants him dead. The last year of David's life is filled with anxiety and fear. So today, so today we look at what should have been the golden year of David's reign, the peak of his linear upward march. But David is back in the wilderness, stripped of his prominence, his security, and his status. So, is the point then that life is actually just a long slide down to death? Not, not quite, not quite. But interesting, what we will see in David's life is counterintuitive to the way we think life actually works. Surprisingly, when David is at the top of his game, when he is doing the best in his life, he's actually the most prone to dissatisfaction, temptation, and sin. We saw a couple weeks ago, didn't we, at the beginning of, you could say, his retirement, as he's lying on a couch, and he sends his servants and his sons to go do his battles for him. It's in that moment that he's most vulnerable, and he makes the worst decision that will haunt him for the rest of his life. But shockingly, as we see today, David is now 20 years past that in the wilderness. He is tired, he is weak, he is a helpless 70-year-old man on the run. And we see that at his lowest point, he actually has strength that he didn't even have at his highest height. You see, David's up is actually down, and his down is actually up. His weakest point is met by the strength of God. Now, you and me here today, we are not in the same situation David is in. However, you and I have faced, might be facing, or will face transitions in our life and difficulties in our life that we could not see coming. Moments in our lives where the upward thrust of our life begins to lose power and we start, it feels like, to descend. Maybe it's a job loss. Maybe it's family members turning their back on us. Maybe it feels like our marriage is cracking. Friends and coworkers become enemies who throw us under the bus. Maybe a deep sin has been revealed. Or there's an unexpected illness. And life just feels to be constricting around us. Maybe you know that feeling. Well, the good news this morning is that in those moments when life is constricting around us and we feel on a downward trajectory, is that God places treasures underneath the subterranean parts of our life when we feel at our lowest condition. You see, usually when God intends the greatest mercy to his people, he brings them to the lowest condition. So, to help us see the treasures that God has placed in those parts of our life, we're going to see David process his fear and his anxiety in Psalm 3. Now, you may have noticed, though, that as Liz read from Psalm 3, there's a heading over Psalm 3. Take a look in your Bibles. It says, a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. So, a bit of a backstory to understand what's going on, and then we're going to dive into Psalm 3. So, in the previous two sections that we looked at with um, the life of David, we honed in on, really, David's tragic misstep as king. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, we saw David take another man's wife, Bathsheba, 
see if this might not be working. Um, another man's wife, Bathsheba, and then he decides to go and kill the husband and basically try and cover up what's actually going on. Now, in the wake of his own evil, we saw David run to the Lord for forgiveness and experience complete, total forgiveness. However, for the rest of his life, he will feel the consequences of that sin. The prophet Nathan said to David that the sword would never depart from his house and his family line, and that evil would be raised from his own household against him. Remember that. Because the very next chapter, we see those consequences coming true. We hear about a story of David's son, Amnon. Amnon is David's firstborn son, the crowned prince, the one to take up the household kingly dynasty. But he takes a liking to his half-sister named Tamar. Now, tragically, Ammon takes Tamar to bed against her will, and he disgraces her. And the author uses verbs reminiscent of David taking Bathsheba, like father, like son. And David finds out about this, and he is enraged. But David doesn't do anything to rectify the situation. He seems crippled by his own similar sin to actually deal out any discipline or judgment. David has grown, grown complacent in his old age. But... Amnon's half-brother Absalom doesn't have the same hesitation. Three years later, Absalom throws a giant banquet and he murders his brother Amnon for humiliating Tamar. Now David's house at this point is beginning to unravel completely. And so after killing Amnon, Absalom, he flees and he lives on the outskirts of the kingdom slowly and quietly sowing dissension against his father David, he seems, who seems weak and unable to actually lead the kingdom. So 20 years later, 20 years since that sin with David and Bathsheba, we find David, a shell of a man he once was, 70 years of age, the last year of his life. And over the years, Absalom has slowly been winning the hearts of the people of Israel, and he has decided to conspire against his own father to take the throne. And so David learns of this plot to take the throne, and so he decides he must flee from his palace in Jerusalem. Many of his closest advisors and friends turn their back on David, and they join Absalom. We find David walking out of Jerusalem in the Kidron Valley near the Mount of Olives. And even the old relatives of King Saul, do you remember King Saul? Old relatives of King Saul come out and curse him and throw stones at him. You ought to be dead, David. David, 70 years old, is back in the wilderness being hunted again. But this time, it's by his own son. So that is the backstory as we come to Psalm 3. And we read David's inner thoughts and worries in verses 1 and 2. Let's read those two verses together again. David says, O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Now in verse 1, we see... The first way into fear. <laughs> the first way into fear when there are surrounding enemies is that life just gets out of control. When our sense of reality begins to just crumble. Now David knew how to fight enemies, didn't he? He knows how to fight the Ammonites. He knows how to fight the Philistines. He even fought a giant named Goliath. But here David is crying out in fear and worry. Where has your courage gone, David? You know, you fought Goliath. Why are you so afraid? Well, David's not lamenting the presence of enemies, but here he is lamenting the sheer amount of enemies that are coming at him. He says three times, how many are my foes? 
Now, most of us in life have a limit to what we can handle, don't we? We can have tons of plates spinning. And I know that in your lives, you probably have more plates than I can imagine that you are spinning right now. We can even deal with pain and frustration and unforeseen circumstances if they remain in our remit to basically keep things under control. But there's usually, well, there is, in every one of us, there's a line in our lives where we suddenly run out of energy, we run out of strength, and we run out of courage, and everything begins to fall and we shut down. And that's what's happening to David here. How many are my foes surrounding me? And it's continually getting worse. He says, many are rising against me. The number of enemies is getting worse and worse. It's one thing to be outnumbered, but it's a different thing to be in a shrinking minority. And that's where David finds himself to be. Do you know that place of fear and anxiety where David is, where just life seems to be constricting around you more and more every day? You feel weaker and weaker. Well, the first way into fear is when life just gets out of our control and reality feels to be crumbling around us. But we see the second way into fear in verse 2. Verse 2 says, Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. The second way into fear is when our internal sense of self and identity is threatened. Now, Here, I think David's sort of replaying the voices and the taunts he heard as he fled from Jerusalem. And internally, he's battling his assurance of the Lord's goodness and kindness to him. You see, after you lose control of your life, the next threat is when you begin to believe that there's no help for you, especially from God, that you really are indeed helpless and alone. Now, David, we know, has been in this situation before, right? He's been in the wilderness being hunted by another king. We know that, but things are different this time. Because in the first circumstance, when he was fleeing away from Saul, however terrible and fearful it became, he, he always acted righteously, and he had an internal sense of the Lord's favor and presence. Do you remember, he could have taken the forbidden fruit of the kingship from Saul, but he refused. But now this time, as he's in the wilderness, the words of his accusers are sticking. David has taken the forbidden fruit of Bathsheba, David has grown old and become ineffective and complacent. David has not acted decisively to save Tamar and discipline his sons. His house is unraveling. Is God with him anymore, or has his time come to an end? His very identity of being God's son and his servant is on the line. David is a tarnished, failed man now in his old age. Maybe he doesn't deserve to be saved anymore. Have you ever listened to internal voices that sounded like David's? You know, maybe you're too far gone. Maybe help isn't coming this time. Maybe help isn't coming this time. When life spins out of control and enemies just sprout like mushrooms all around you and the voices in our head begin to accuse us, David helps us, though, suit up for battle. How do we deal with this overwhelming, crippling sense of fear and worry? Well, he shows us that we have a shielding presence in the midst of that in verse 3. Take a look at verse 3. It says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. So David has honestly expressed his fear and his anxiety and his worry. And then David comes to three simple, short truths. First, the Lord is a shield about me. Now David is reminding himself of an image that his forefather Abram was told by the Lord. In Genesis 15, God says to Abram, he says, fear not, Abram. For I am your shield. Now we might think, okay, David, that's a nice thought. But 
all these enemies are coming around you, thousands even. What are you going to do with a shield? But notice, David says, you are a shield about me. It's very reminiscent of the song we sang at the very beginning of the service. The image is not of just a sort of a small little shield, but a shield that covers every inch of where he is. Instead of thinking of a small shield you hold on to, think of those battalion formations where they plop their shields in the ground all around and as a roof. That is the image that David is giving us. David knows that there's this tightening, fearful reality constricting around him. But he knows that even closer than that, he is surrounded by the Lord who says, I am your shield, David. Now the thing with shields is they don't stop battles from happening, but they do keep you safe in battles. He knows that arrows will be shot, swords will be swung, but it is the Lord who stands in between him and this tightening sense of the enemies. The Lord is my shield when the tides of fear begin to feel suffocating. The Lord is my shield. Secondly, though, he says, the Lord is his glory. Now, if the Lord being a shield was the answer to the first way into fear, when life just gets out of control and you need a genuine shield, the Lord being his glory is an answer to the second type of fear, when your own sense of identity breaks down. Now, David knew what it was like to feel like a failure, 70 years old, and look back on all of his mistakes, stripped of his kingly respect, a fugitive on the run, with the doubt, is the Lord actually for me in this? With many betraying him, he declared in faith, in contrast to the humiliation and the shame he was feeling, that the Lord was his glory. You see, when our sense of self is attacked, when it's disgraced and dishonored, when you feel under attack, when people say things against you, our natural tendency is to add our voice to the crowd and justify ourselves. We aren't really that far gone. I'm actually quite righteous and I'm actually quite strong. But that is a losing game. Have you ever had those internal voices and battles going on inside of you. But here David shows us a sure way of grounding us. Instead, instead of fighting back with our words, we turn to the one who can never be toppled, diminished, or darkened. We turn to the Lord as our honor and glory. And surprising, when we are cut down, when we eventually let go of all of our sense of self-righteousness and self-sufficiency, and we cling to the Lord as our sole source of glory and righteousness and honor, something really special happens, is that we actually share in his glory. What do I mean by that? Well, there was a Puritan writer named Jeremiah Burroughs who I think helpfully encapsulated this. And he he, uh, compares the sort of the glory and the greatness of his great landscape with the glory of a man under fire. He says this. He says, when you go into the groves and the woods and you see the tallness of the trees and their shadows... It strikes a kind of awful fear of deity in you. And when you see vast rivers and fountains and deep waters, that strikes a kind of fear of God in you. But, he says, do you see a man who is quiet in his tempests and who lives happily in the midst of adversities? If you see that, why do you not worship that man? He thinks a man worthy of such honor who will be quiet and live a happy life through the midst of adversities. Here's what he says. The glory of God appears here more than any other other of his works. There's no work that God has made, the sun, the moon, the stars, and all the world in which so much the glory of God appears as in a man who lives quietly in the midst of his adversity. The man or woman under pressure today who gives up any sense of self-glory and quietly and humbly lives under the glory of God begins to shine in a new and a profound way. Could it be 
that in our darkest moments, as we cling to the Lord, that the glory of God is most evident in us. As Apostle Paul later writes, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. David knows what it's like that the Lord is his glory. And third, the Lord is the lifter of his head. Thirdly and finally, is the slide working back there? No? Okay. Um, Third, the Lord is the lifter of his head. Now David's balm to his fear and anxiety is to trust that the Lord lifts his head. (laughs) In this small phrase, we learn two things. One, David's head hangs low, but we know that the Lord has a proven track record of being the one who lifts heads, who puts his hand under our chins and lifts our heads. In the moments of fear when life begins to constrict around us in an unforeseen way, I tend to feel, personally, that life is only going to get worse from this point on. <laughs> there's no going back. I feel like I'm in a room that's locked and there's no key. But in that moment, when there's no foreseeable way out, Dave returns to this image that we usually associate with a parent and a child picking up one's head and lifting it. Burroughs says again, he says, usually God intends the greatest mercy to any of his people. He then brings them to the lowest condition. David's head is hanging extremely low, but the Lord is a lifter of heads. Okay, you might be thinking, that's great, Peter. (laughs) Feels like you just told me a lot of things that I kind of know and I kind of believe. And I might actually say, yeah, I, I can see that I find myself living in fear often. Life feels constricting and it's helpful to know the Lord is my shield and my glory and the lifter of my head. I believe that. I think that. I don't feel that. I don't feel it in my bones. How does David actually get to that place of trust? Well, notice the verb tense here in verse 3. David says, Lord, you are my shield and my glory. That's present tense, currently. That's what David is experiencing. But the next two verses are written in the past tense, indicating that what happens in the next two verses is the bridge between that disabling fear and that God-glorifying trust. So let's read verses 4 and 5 together. Verse 4, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. And I lay down and I slept, and I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. We find the bridge is sustaining sleep. The bridge is sustaining sleep. David does two things in the midst of his fear. First, in verse 4, he cried aloud. In the midst of the fear, he had an assurance that he was actually heard that the words of his heart and his mouth actually made it to the real God who made the heavens and the earth. And the real God who made the heavens and the earth is at, we were told, the holy hill. Now, the holy hill is Mount Zion, or Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem was the Ark of the Covenant, which was God's throne. The image here is given not of a distant God, but of God so close that he can hear the whispers on your lips and a God who can actually help as he reigns from his throne. He answers David from a throne seat. Now today when we speak aloud to the Lord from the loneliness of our circumstances, we can be assured he's not hard of hearing. His attention isn't divided when you speak to him. Rather, he's so near to us, he hears us exactly as we come to him. And the Lord is not just a counselor. He's not only someone we can spill our hearts out to and get a sense of self-understanding. That is not only what prayer is. 
he is also able to help us. He is one who answers us from his throne on his holy hill. So this morning, if you feel their plates, they're beginning to fall. If you feel the constricting uh, aspects of everyday life, what would you have to say or lament and ask the Lord today? Because he hears it and he's able to help. David would encourage you to do this, to say it out loud. Say it out loud. Notice he says, he cries out loud. Now, for many of us, myself included, prayers often a sort of quiet inner thought process. And if you're like me, it often goes way off track, only 30 seconds into the prayer. So what I want to encourage you from this text is, I want to encourage you to consider praying out loud when you pray, even when you pray individually. You know, God hears the words of our mouth, and he hears the meditation of our hearts, Silent prayer is just as valid as spoken out prayer. But I think we can all agree that when we are trying to communicate, speech is the default way of speaking. If you ever tried communicating with your spouse through mental telepathy, I thought you should take out the trash, you know it doesn't work, does it? We don't transfer thoughts from our heads into others, but by speaking them. And so I want to encourage you, and I think this psalm says it, to consider praying out loud to the God we worship. The first bridge between David's fear and trust in the Lord is that he knows the Lord is near, he's able to help, and he actually hears the words that come out of his mouth. That's the first. The second bridge between David's fear and trust is that he takes a snooze. He goes to bed. (laughs) That's it. He goes to sleep. In verse 5, we're told David laid down, and he slept, and then he woke up, for the Lord sustained him. Now, sleep is often the first thing to go when we feel overwhelmed by the constricting grip of life. And now, in recent days, sleep has become kind of the last frontier to find success in your life. Oddly, sleep is no longer time to sort of shut off. It's quickly become a tool to sort of hack so we can improve our productivity or our mental sharpness or our long-term health. Even sleep is exhausting these days. Those of us who wear Fitbits or smartwatches, we wake up with a notification on our wrist telling us, giving us a score of how well we slept that night. How much were you able to recover in your sleep last night? Even sleep is exhausting. And so this vicious cycle, I'm worried, I'm anxious, so I can't sleep, and I wake up, and I'm anxious and worried because I didn't sleep. But that's not the way David understands sleep. Biblically, sleep was not another arena of work. Sleep was handing yourself over to the one who works for us while we sleep and watches us, overwatches us as we sleep. Because when we sleep, we are, just by definition, we are at our most vulnerable All of us last night, we all laid there, didn't we? Some of us on our sides, some of us on our backs, some of us on our stomachs, probably many of us drooling, all of our jaws slack, and we were defenseless, completely unaware of what what happened for those seven to eight hours. Think about David sleeping in the wilderness. For all he knew, Absalom was just right around the corner. As he closed his eyes, that might be the last time he fell asleep. But he awoke. And for those seven or eight hours, he realized those are a picture of my life. Vulnerable, defenseless in myself, but sustained, strengthened, and overshadowed by the Lord. 30% of our lives are spent asleep. And each night we yield to sleep. We practice letting go of reliance on our efforts. And we abide in the grace of our creator. 
Embracing sleep is a confession of our limits, but it is also a joyful, compassion, joyful confession of God's limitless care for us. David yielded to sleep in the middle of his fear. You might be reminded of another man who fell asleep in a boat that was about to break apart in the middle of a storm. So at the end of every day, we lie down in our beds, we rest, our muscles relax, our jaws go slack, we're exposed and we're weak, and we drift, yet we are held fast. Our our guard watches over us and sustains us. And this is what David is saying, it's a picture of our entire life, not just the eight hours of darkness each night. You see, David came to a place of trust, knowing the Lord's nearness, that he could hear him and help him, and the Lord's sustaining sleep. And in verse eight, we, verses 6 to 8, we see a very encouraged King David. Look at verses 6 to 8. It says, I will not be afraid of, afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. You see, David ends this psalm singing salvation. Now, the verb tense changes again. We've seen David talk in the present, the past, and now it is the future tense. David says he will not be afraid of many thousands of people. Now, in verse 1, David was afraid of many people, but now it's many thousands of people. You see, David's circumstances have actually gotten worse at this point, but he has come to the place where he has gained confidence in the Lord. In verse 7, David sort of stirs up the Lord. Come on, up Yahweh. Come on, Lord, you need to save me now. For you break the teeth of the wicked and strike my enemies on the cheek. This is the imagery of enemies as wild animals circling him. Lord, you need to render them ineffective and useless. And do you remember what his enemies taunted him with in verse 2? There's no salvation for him in God. David ends the psalm. Salvation belongs to the Lord in verse 8. David does not end here on a high note of his power or that he's a comeback king. He ends by acknowledging in whose hands his salvation lies, who is really in control, even as the situation seems to get worse. It echoes what Adam mentioned in that video we watched. I realized I had to give up control, but then I realized I never really had control in the first place. David comes to that place of confidence because he knows the one who holds his salvation is the one who is near to him and sustains him even through the night. The actual story of David and Absalom ends soon after this, and Absalom is actually defeated, and his attack on David is stopped, and David is reestablished as king. A nice end to the story. David actually experiences salvation. But what about you and me? (laughs) Still feeling the constricting aspects of life, still worried and fearful, is there, any, is there any assurance for us? Is there anything for us? Yes. And I think we can have even more confidence than David did. You see, because David had to entrust himself to the Lord's hands without knowing whether he would be given the victory. But a son of David has come to secure a victory for you and me, which can never be touched or tarnished or put into question. You already have a victory You see, one of David's sons followed in his footsteps. Quite literally, he would walk the exact same path that David walked in this story through the Kidron Valley and up into the Mount of Olives. And this son of David, the rightful king, 
would be conspired against by his greatest allies, his closest allies. And in the darkness of night, he would cry out loud, like David, for help from God. And he was mocked and taunted that there's no salvation for him. And he'd be led to a cross and he'd cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he'd be encircled by enemies like wild animals. As the psalm continues, dogs encompassed me, a company of evildoers encircled me. The strong bulls of Bashan surround me. You see, Jesus Christ is the son of David who walked in his father's footsteps, but he walked even further. You see, for Jesus, he was not seeking his own victory or his own salvation, but yours and mine. Jesus confronted the powers of darkness and sin and death. And then Jesus went and slept the deepest sleep, the sleep of death, our death. And while he descended to the dead, the Lord sustained him. And he woke again, rising victorious for you and for me. Our God lifts our heads even in death, to behold his victory. As the Apostle Paul writes, so that now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Even when many thousands arise, we can have confidence that the world is a perfectly safe place for us to be in. Because our future is secure, we are sustained by the God who gives himself for us, and nothing can separate us from that God. You see, without Jesus, our lives really are a terror a real danger, because our earthly shields, they're going to fail. Our human glory, it's going to fade. Our necks are going to become tired, and our heads will hang. But the offer this morning is to trust Jesus for salvation today. And the Lord will be your shield, your glory, and the lifter of your head. So speak out loud today and this week, and sleep well. Would you pray with me? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I ask um, for your help right now, as I'm sure many of us uh, have burdens and worries and anxieties and more things that we can count that encircle us. Lord, it's a scary position to be in. Lord, we we can sympathize with David, how many are surrounding me. So Lord, would you help us to trust that right now, The silent meditations of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth are heard by you. Lord, would you help us to rest in you and not our own self-reliance so we might know tangibly that you are the shield all about us, that you are our glory in the midst of our adversity, and that you really do lift our heads. So we ask, um, would you help us to cultivate um, this, yeah, reception of your grace and your power and your victory in our lives. Would you help us to accept that the world is a perfectly safe place for us to be because we are held by you and ultimately nothing can separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus. So help us and guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.